2: Back to Conspira Normal. We're gone for a couple of weeks But uh, we are back and uh, we've got our good friend Nathan Isaac with us And uh, we're just going to see where this conversation goes so, Nathan, I think this is actually the first time that we've had you on by yourself I don't think we've ever had you on with, without Kyle Darian No roll crew I don't think I didn't know that, man.
3: I thought maybe we had done, one. but I, I guess because of Strange Realities,
2: so. we did like the Strange Realities previews. We had done those, but then usually that was with other people as well. Yeah, yeah. So, oh, shit, man. I this think is this wild. is the first time you're you're solo on this yeah. show. So, my virgin. So solo. welcome.
3: <laughs> Thanks, man. Thanks for having me on here.
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, if you would indulge me, though, I wanted to talk about what I got to do um, last week and which we were kind of talking about, uh, here right before we started. But, uh, I, uh, and pertinent to, uh, a show that, uh, and I did, God, when did we do that? Like four years ago now, or almost four years ago.
1: Long time. Ago. I, remember, ago. Uh, I remember Nathan caught the, uh, my presentation on the same thing too.
3: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I did. It was fantastic also like it's very, very cool like I have so many questions for you man after you after you tell us about this because oh, okay yeah super, yeah yeah I'm super intrigued by it.
2: well uh, so I got to go to Mardi Gras uh, which was awesome but I also as part of that got to be in one of the parades and I will tell you how that this transpired how I got to do this um, I got to join a crew which the crew that I joined, K-R-E-W-E, which the crew that I joined is the crew of Thoth, so the like ancient Egyptian god of wisdom, uh, equivalent to Hermes. And um, how this happened was that I have a former manager of mine, a good friend of mine named Joe, and um, about a year or so ago he asked me about come we had always talked about going to new orleans going to mardi gras he grew up down there and it's something that he periodically still does with his family which is go there so he's pretty much an expert on mardi gras and everything where to go what's the best place to see it what's the best place to do all these type of things what crew is going to be you know running when and, uh, he asked me to join this crew because, um, him and his son were going to do it. And he said he really wanted somebody, you know, his, a good friend to go with him. And so, um, at the time I was pretty busy with planning the conference, but I, you know, you got to pay your dues. So I paid the dues to get into the crew and all that. And, uh, wasn't able to attend like any of the meetings or anything. Um, so we get there, uh, we got there on Friday Uh, we actually weren't there the day of Mardi Gras, but the thing is about Mardi Gras in new Orleans, there are parades that start. I think the first one started this year on January 14th. So this is like a pretty much like a, it's almost like a two month thing. And in the week leading up to Mardi Gras is when you have the, the most of the parades, especially in new Orleans, there's just several parades. Uh, there, there's like kind of a misconception that I had about Mardi Gras was that I always thought that Mardi Gras was something that took place in the French quarter. It does not. Uh, the parades is what I mean. Uh, the parades do not happen in the French quarter cause the streets are way too narrow for some of these massive ass floats. So uh but we did when we went to the French Quarter we did get to see a walking parade and it was like this crew of these guys with chef chef's hats passing out wooden spoons to people and they were playing jazz and it was like a really cool thing to see. Um so that Friday night we got there there were two parades there was the crew of Hermes and I can't remember yeah, uh, that yeah, the other one's the crew d'etat. So it was like the crew of Hermes, and each one has its like own theme. And the Hermes one was very kind of classically based. Um and the floats are just these things are just like I mean, they're just like works of art within themselves. Okay. Each one is like really elaborately designed and, and really cool. And then and the second one that night, uh, that crew was kind of more the they were the political satire crew. So you would have, like, these uh, floats that had, like, Trump on it or, like, Biden or, like, you know, these different, you know, officials or, like, even uh, some inside jokes of, like, New Orleans or Louisiana politics. You had a lot of those. And I actually got a little, um, they hand these things out, um, these little, like, it was almost like a little playbill that showed you what each one was. That was the only crew that I saw that did that. But it was really neat. I mean, just like, you know, these were the nighttime parades and that's mostly what we saw. Um, You know, you've got these guys, you know, they carry these big, um, these like, they're like, they're like torch bearers basically. Mm -hmm. And um, this is like a tradition. It's a holdover from when there was no electricity and these guys would carry these, these big torches and they would, that's, they. basically, they're the ones that, you know, the start the parade. And of course you've got the floats and you've got, um, you know, all these different like high school and college bands and color guards that are a part of this. So like, these are big, massive things. Okay. Um, so we watched that, uh, the Saturday night, we, we Saturday, we went over to the French quarter, did all that stuff. Bourbon street is probably one of the craziest places I've ever seen in my life, <laughs> Um, I got a you know, just, you know, saw a drag queen singing crazy train on the side of the side of the road, side of the street. Um, just interest. Jesus was there. Um, there
1: were like, uh, there, there,
2: there, there were all these like, you know, Christian protesters. And as we're getting into like Jackson square, we're walking down from this river walk area that goes along the Mississippi river and just like the most bizarre, like just a position of my life i've got this you've got these there were these uh christian protesters and they were protesting they were protesting mardi gras essentially you know so nobody you know lord forbid anybody have fun and, uh, you know, like things like, you know, God hates homos and these type of things, or homosexuality is sin is one of them that it said, and they got their loudspeakers and they're, you know, they're, they're blaring their message. Well, down below the steps, there's this, there's this, there's this guy, you know, this this old black guy and he's just down there just singing like Al green or something, just ignoring whatever is going on around him. And it was just this strange juxtaposition of just like, welcome to new Orleans. It's just the craziest place on earth. So we got to see the crew of a Demion that night on that Saturday evening. Their theme was all about silent films, which was cool. Um, I was I was sorry that I did not get to see the Metropolis one, which was extravagant. Cool, uh, which I later saw on TV. And the reason we did not we did not wait is that we had to be up early to go do our thing in the morning. Right, and um, but what was funny was that. Uh, the the floats were coming in and these things are massive right some of them were like triple deckers okay and the the floats coming in and like you know over there the traffic lights are kind of oriented differently they're to the to the side not up and down right because of the hurricanes i'm assuming and two of the floats managed to knock down a traffic light oh yeah so this traffic light is just like hanging and dangling and, uh, Joe was finally just like, okay, we that's probably going to be a while and we got to be up early. We got a long day tomorrow. So let's go. So we went back to the hotel. So on Sunday morning, and I start seeing like people with shirts that say "Thoth Sunday. So people are like very supportive of their, like of the parade that they like. Okay. And apparently like, you know, the Saturday night and Demion, that's when people like really, you know, really, really wait for. And Thoth is another one. So we were a day parade. Um, you get started. You go downstairs. There's like 2,500 guys down in this big uh, hotel ballroom. We stayed in the same hotel that we were starting out from. And basically, you are just like there. You you go to where you're sitting with your float with your lieutenant. Who's basically the guy that is on the float with you, that's that's in charge of you. You go sit down, you have breakfast. There's no real interaction with anybody else because you're in this huge ballroom. Um, so I didn't get to any like any any secrets of the crew or anything like that. But uh so we get on this thing, we we get to the float, we get on it, we're waiting and waiting. You've got um you've got a bucket to piss in, right? You know, it's I just always all, wondered
1: about that. Yeah, it's
2: all dudes on this thing, so they've got a bucket over there. We everyone shared the bucket. Fortunately, we were right next to the bucket, and of course, they're just they're just giving you beer the yeah. whole entire time, right? Yeah. And uh, on the way there, we're on this bus, and this guy comes up to us. Me and Joe are sitting in the very back, and this guy comes up to us, and he's like, "Guys, I really got to take a leak." I'm like it's serious. Uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna use this beer can. <laughs> so this guy is like peeing in this beer can right next to us, and and you've got to go around the city right to go to your staging area. So we're going, to, we're through like in this like industrial area, and there's like a there's like a bunch of train tracks, and so we're going over these things, and this dude is just sitting there, just trying to piss into a into a beer can. It's just like. <laughs> this I'm like, this experience is great already. <laughs> you know, and you get on this thing, and Joe had told me, you know, it's like we're gonna be on this thing for six hours. And honestly, as soon as we got going, it felt like I was on it for like 30 minutes. Man. It was just it's just that quick, and just the energy is from the crowd is just so massive you don't even notice. And of course, you know, I was drinking, I had some vodka, I had some beer but I was like sweating so much because you're in this costume and you're also in a mask. So you're just sweating so much that you don't, you know, Yeah, I really wasn't getting that drunk. And so we're driving by. And one of the things that Thoth does, uh, they have a little bit of a longer parade route because what they do is they go by some of these hospitals. They're like kind of, the, because some of these crews are also charitable organizations. So you go, you go by these hospitals where people maybe can't get outside or they're shut in or whatever and so they can see the they can see the parade go by so and then you hit like these kind of like residential areas and people are outside having like these block parties um in these residential areas and like it's starting to get wild and i'm like and i'm even telling joe i'm like this this is wild this is crazy and he's like wait he's like wait till we get to saint charles so St. Charles Avenue—that is the main thoroughfare of these parades—and as soon as you hit that, all hell breaks loose. You're throwing beads left and right. We're like we got, like we had, like a whole stack. By the end, you're done. Like you, you have nothing left. And we're throwing T-shirts and beads and all kinds of trinkets and all kinds of stuff outside. And uh, finally, about probably about six thirty, we we were done. And you know that night, we just cut. You know, kind of just called it a night because that was a big day. The next day, I got to see on Monday night. We hung around for for a while. Um, you're in this circle, like this main circle that's uh, called Lee Circle, and uh, or used to be called Lee Circle because of yeah. a statue of the of <laughs> what the Lee Jer- might
1: that be? Adam?
2: yeah, yeah. That that was a that was a sore spot for some people there, but
1: because um, the statue's gone now, right?
2: Because the statue is gone, you've just it's a like pedestal with a blank. With nothing on the, it's a, it's a column with nothing on it. So you, so you're in this thing and uh, got to see the crew of Proteus, which is the, um, not the oldest crew in existence, but it is the oldest crew still running. So it's, it's, it's from like the 1880s. I think, um, can't remember the, you might refresh me on this or feel the original crew Thomas. Yeah, they were, they, they're still around. But they only do the they only do like a special ball during the time of uh, the was was donors. that
1: one and those older ones a bit more of a high class affair did it seem or do you know
2: um yeah a little bit like their their theme for that was like Italian satirical comedy from the Renaissance
1: and I mean the membership though in particular
2: yeah well it's hard I mean probably yeah yeah, yeah it's kind of hard to tell um. The so that's one of the oldest crew, and then after that was the crew of Orpheus, which is one of the newer crews, and that actually um, is Harry Connick Jr.'s crew, and I actually got to see him on the float. And is actually it was founded by Harry Connick Jr. and his father, Harry Connick Senior, which incidentally was the one that defeated Garrison for for DA and was DA of New Orleans for thirty years after that. Which by the way, Nathan, I did get to go to Jim Garrison's
3: grave on that Saturday too. Did you, man? Was that kinda of wild? Was this picky?
2: <laughs> yeah, it was kinda um it was kinda nondescript really. Um and it was kinda like he's just there kind of buried alone. And uh, you know, I did the whole find a grave thing and managed to find him. It took me a little bit to find him, but once I did, you know, it was there. So What's
3: it look like? Is it is it anything? Is it just a headstone?
2: Yeah, it's kind of just a big headstone, Um, you know. But you're that's in it's in Metairie, which is this kind of more unincorporated, rich suburb of New Orleans, not very far. And um, but there's a lot of like real movers. It's it's like one of those cemeteries, kind of like Mount Olive. here, Surfbill, where it's like movers and shakers of New Orleans are in there. Uh, like the guy who you know, uh, owned the Saints is buried there. Okay, and there's like also this like Confederate uh, monument that's all that's next to him. So they're really ornate graves, mm-hmm. but Garrison's is kind of it's kind of a smaller grave. Um, yeah, you know, he's kind of buried alone, which I was kind of like, man, this is it's kind of it was kind of sad, really. But it's uh, it had on its um. It was like, you know, let, tree, let let justice be done or the heavens fall, which was what I guess he said and what was used in the movie.
1: But it was like walking around the Kaaba for a conspiracy theorist. I bet Adam.
3: <laughs> well, it, like, well, I wonder, like, was anybody, uh, did anyone leave any coins or anything? Or was there anything like left on the grave? Like people, I fans? think there <laughs>
2: might, I think there might've been some flowers. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, I got I got a picture of it. I'll I'll send it over to you. Yeah, but um, it was, was um, yeah, it was an inter- it was an interesting trip. Uh, I I know ne- I had never been to New Orleans, and for the first time in New Orleans, my first Mardi Gras, and I got to be a part of Mardi Gras. So, uh, yeah, it was a it was a real blast. Um, definitely something that I would. Because I would, I would advise going back um, to to anybody. It's it it is an event, and like I mean, just just seeing the floats alone. I mean, these things are so big, and just so ornate. Each and every single one of them is like the is like a work of art in and of itself.
3: So does so each crew has a parade basically right so there's like how many yes. how many floats did were in the the crew that you were in and the thought uh party?
2: I think our crew was about thirty.
3: Okay. So, um, so- they,
0: they
2: they 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 kind of vary between um in size. Some of them were like thirty some of them were as little as fifteen it, it it just depends on you know the size and i guess the budget of the crew or what they want to or what they want to do
3: do do they also like does each crew reach out and find like marching bands and others to mix in with their parade
2: yeah i'm not sure how that, exactly that works i think that um it's probably it's it's probably it might be that the it, it might be kind of a charitable thing for some of the, for some of the bands. Um, yeah. I, I'm not quite sure exactly how the crews do that, how they get, how they, how they get the bands or whether it's like something that they have to sign up for, or it's something that um, they seek these, these people, these, uh, these different high school or college bands out. I'm not exactly sure how it really works.
3: So, so like, if you live in new Orleans from like January, through uh, mardi gras like you you can hear parades all over the city all the time right yeah somewhere yeah. somewhere in the city a parade yeah. is happening yeah. basically right
2: yeah something is happening and, and and there was that there was that walking the like, walking parade that i said we, we saw in the french quarter um that one was uh that just like it was it was like guys on a wagon and you had like the king on a horse or whatever you know
3: Um, like after you guys did all the research about the like I didn't know anything I've never been to New Orleans I've never seen Mardi Gras live or anything but uh so I'm very jealous of of your trip that sounds amazing but like we should all go next year yeah dude that that would be amazing uh I'm in so uh but the research that you guys did which you know was fantastic about the the mystical cruise like I didn't know any of that fucking shit man like (laughs) (laughs) Because <laughs> yeah, it, it puts the me whole neither. thing in a in a totally different viewpoint, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it means something that I did absolutely had no idea it meant, and now, like you describing it, I'm thinking of it in a totally different sort of vibe than what I would have if you're like, oh, I saw the parades at Mardi Gras, right? Now it's something you know even more magical.
1: Well, Adam, yeah. and you said that the there was a lot of uh kind of those classical mythological and, and occult even themes going on in like in the floats. Yeah. Right. There's like oh, a giant yeah. bath. Absolutely.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, The, the crew of Orpheus, which um for some obvious reasons, because of Harry Connie jr. Mostly is oriented towards music. And uh, if you look at their symbol, their symbol is actually a harp, like a lyre, um like a so orpheus is a figure from greek mythology that you know is associated with music um i think i have some of their beads yeah yeah i think that yeah that's it that's cool that's that's of orpheus (sighs) um and their theme this year was music of the spheres
1: okay um
2: so of course there was there was references to uh you know celestial bodies and they pulled a lot of some of the stuff from like whole the planets if you've ever heard that whole symphony of the planets mm-hmm. where he goes through uh mars to neptune basically uh like a mars bringer of war um and there was a but there but the, the one of the last floats um and i was not prepared for this was um it was about good and evil okay and on the front of the float was bafflement like this big orange bafflement doing the exact, you know, the buffs as above as above. So below the elephant
1: levy version. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Right. And in the back, there was like an angel, like a goddess on the back. So there's a lot of like uh, just a ton of classical uh, references. The crew of Hermes was like that too. I did not get to see really any of the floats uh, for, uh ours because we're so focused on getting on it and then you're when you're on it like you don't really know what's in front of you you don't really know what's behind you um was it like egyptian but, though the one you were on there was some egyptian themes but their their theme was like thoth goes fasting so we had like a comic we we had superman at the front of our at the front of ours and i don't really know what the, what some of the others were mm-hmm. so you like you know i'd kind of like to see what they do next year, but it'll be a different theme. Yeah. So, but, but each one, you know, Hermes, um, Proteus, Endymion, all these different names that they have, uh, for these, for these, for these, uh, crews, they're all, uh, most of them are from some kind of mythology, some kind of classical or even Egyptian mythology. Um, when we did the show about, that there was a great book that's her field fan that i have we both have that's uh about like it's called mardi gras as it was and i think it was written sometime in the 40s and it goes through you know how this started why uh just kind of like a brief refresher is that and i kind of had to refresh myself on this especially when looking at the um the crew of um Proteus, which was one of the, that's one, that's the oldest one. Um, They, uh, uh, how it started was Mardi Gras, of course, you know, it's a Catholic holiday. And there were, uh, there were Mardi Gras celebrations in the French quarter uh, for the longest time and still are. Um, But the, and parades were probably a part of that. But what happened was that, you know, as the city grew and of course the United States gained possession of New Orleans, um, you had that kind of, you know, the French Catholic part in Spanish, French and Spanish Catholic part of New Orleans. But then you had over overlaid on that, the new Protestant immigration to New Orleans and around the 1850s, there was and actually and actually the mardi gras parades the crews were actually started by protestants not catholics i think i'm correct in that right serfio yeah yeah it was like a group of like these protestant businessmen they wanted to take some of the focus away from the french quarter but also in a way to bring the community together so they started these crews as a as as a means to do uh to to, to this this uh to to Celebrate this Mardi Gras. And basically it was a way to bring the Protestants and bring the Catholics together in the city. So kind of the older people that had been there since the French had settled it and the new Protestant influence, new American influence there too. And now it's become, it's like this kind of, it's a real hybrid holiday of sorts. Like, you know, I mean, you don't have to be Catholic to enjoy it.
1: Yeah. I'm glad you got to do that, dude. That's, that's pretty special. You call it once in a lifetime.
2: Yeah, it's massive. It's
3: a, it's I mean, gonna, it's,
2: it's a massive thing.
3: You're gonna do it again next year? Yeah.
2: Thinking about it. I don't know if I'll ride, but uh I, I definitely cause I just like you guys. I mean, you guys you, you you have to see this. And especially you guys that appreciate this kind of like history of secret societies, because that's what they are. Yeah, their secret societies are based. They're based, and I think you know the original founders of the I think of Comus were Freemasons originally, and um, so they based it a lot on Freemasonry.
1: Yeah, that's the mystic but, in the Mystic Crew,
2: right? And their whole idea, but um, but it's like, but it's it's a secret. They are secret societies, but they have like this one purpose. And their purpose is to put on these these parades, and celebrate Barney Grow. So, I mean, I find that super interesting in and of itself. But yeah, for anyone who there's that, there's you different.
1: You've got go like, that episode. Thoth Thoth is
2: is male. is all guys, um, but there are male and female. People it can can join. I think Orpheus was was uh, both sexes, but it just depends on what the the rule of the of the crew is. Basically,
1: there's no co-masonry in Thoth.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I just you know I would love for you guys to be there and to see you know to see something to you know to to get that out of it because I think a lot of people you know they they don't some some people they're there they love it they enjoy it it's it's uh, it's a part of their lives but they might not understand some of the imagery and some of the things that are being conveyed so and some of the people on the crew might not understand that either because like Thoth was founded in 1947 so I mean it's been over 70 years.
3: And and like they do the the same types of things in like Memphis, right? Mm -hmm. Like there are crews in Memphis as well.
1: Yeah, so it's um up the Nile.
2: It's but yeah, I don't I don't think it's anything like. But the the reason how this all started for us, for me and Serpia, looking into this, was we went to Destin in Mm -hmm. the beginning of 2019. And him and I decided we're going to go to Pensacola. And I was like, Pensacola is a cool little place. We'll check it out. Well, we didn't know that there was a Mardi Gras going on in Pensacola. And this was like January 5th. So really, it was a 12th night celebration. And the beginning of 12th night, that's the end of the Christmas season or Christmas tide. And then uh, that officially kind of starts the mardi gras season rolling until you actually get to mardi gras so i think mobile there's one in there uh anywhere there's like that french or spanish influence there's there's a mardi gras
3: that's cool was it was it uh downard was didn't he have some or his family someone around downer was connected to the memphis like one of the committees or something like that, you know. Um,
1: I think they've got sure. those mostly uh, Egyptian-themed crews in mm-hmm. Memphis, so that probably fits in all that.
2: There's also the Veiled Prophet too in St. Yeah. Louis,
1: which is ba- at the same time the stuff is like spreading up the Mississippi, um, the crew system. So then you know it's this way that uh, a new crowd, not traditional celebrators we able to celebrate uh, Mardi Gras across the country and just all those Protestant secret society networks kind of celebrating themselves as like the uh, kind of the royalty of the time. And uh, that carries over into the veiled prophet. But I think uh, something that the thing that I was really interested in was the, the way that uh, they were used for social control, like the whole idea was that the traditional celebrations in the French quarter and stuff were too anarchic and that this would create like a spectacle that could be organized by the city and the police and stuff. And, you know, it was more became more of like a, a passive thing. And then the veil profit parade was like right after the uh, big railroad strike and the, the commune of St. Louis. So it was a way to like restore order and like, symbolically the the capitalist class kind of like uh created themselves around as hidden royalties kind of weird shit
3: Do you did all the the research too on the labor secret societies right yeah and like, yeah. like it's, it's fucked up man when you think about it, how many like when you were talking about the spread of the crew system and these secret societies up the mississippi But when you really look at the sort of landscape, right? At the turn of the century or late, the late 1800s and early Mm 1900s, there were a lot of fucking secret societies, man, you know, like, like a lot, like, it's kind of like uh, the fraternities, like, you know, like when I I went to Transy uh, up in Lexington, uh, Kentucky, Transylvania university. And like, if you went to the college, 95% of the, of the, student body was in a fraternity or sorority like you had to in a sense join that system in order to function at the school and i thought that was really strange but it was all of those uh fraternities and sororities were like 200 plus years old you know transy was in like the late 1700s that it was founded you know so it was one of the earliest colleges and like that was a weird thing to to see because i was like wow why does why do you have to be a part of this but it's like most people were probably in some type of secret society or fraternal organization mm-hmm. at the end of the 18. If you were male, probably right uh, in the late 1800s, early 1900s. Well, that's yeah. like um, yeah, the
1: Grange too, and you know everything. Yeah, well,
3: the, yeah
2: I mean that's what the um, you know Spence. I think he he talked about it. I don't know if you got if you watched his um, history of secret societies on uh, I think Wondrium is what he's, yeah. uh, is what it's on, but. You know, he talks about that. He talks about like the knights of the knights of labor is the most obvious one.
1: And I they mean, had was, to adopt yeah, that secretive right. system because right. without that, you know, there would be no, we wouldn't have had the first unions because they depended yeah. on that secrecy.
2: Right. It was an easy way to translate for, for guys that, you know, it was, it was a counter to, but it was also something that these guys would have been used to something like Freemasonry already. So that it was something that they were familiar with. Um, just to kind of talk a little bit about the, I was, I was struck by, and I, I I knew this going in, but like, you know, really, when you get there, you're really struck by it in the history, in in the history of just the equation of the Mississippi to the Nile. Um, that's something that's very strong there, you know? And like you say, you've got some of these, there's, there's place names that are like, you know, there's like a. The place like araby and like these you know these type of places and or you know or something like the barbary coast or the you know um and the crescent you know new orleans is the crescent city okay so you you got a little bit of the, the arabian stuff going on i mean all this stuff was popular in literature in the 19th century but like um and the delta is the most obvious thing you know i mean you know but um when we were we went to the Battle of New Orleans site and I told I was telling you guys this, but like there were all these Ebuses there. And I'm you know, I kinda of pointed out, you know, synchronicity, Thoth is, you know, the Ebus headed god but it's like, it would be very easy for someone to be like, that have, that have these kind of romantic notions of yeah. Egypt yeah. to see birds like that and say, well, the Mississippi is the new Nile, you know, it's the yeah. backbone of the country. And, you know, it's like, I mean, it, you know, it has the same strategic importance too. And then you've got, of course, Memphis, you know, it's pretty obvious. And then you've got Southern Illinois, Cairo, and that's called little Egypt and all these types of things. So, I mean, some of that, even you could say that you could really say, you know, like somebody like Downer that would really, you know, influence him in and yeah. like all these different kind of place names, whether he correctly understood it, I don't know, but you know, it was kind of like, you can definitely see there's just like that kind of fascination of like, this is the new Egypt. This is the new, the known the new Nile mm-hmm. and these type of things. And just like kind of that, that it's that 19th century, um, Orientalism. Orientalism and Romanticism too. And it's translated uh, into the place names and the ideas of the, of, of the area.
1: Yeah, that's wild. I mean, yeah, it's there. <laughs> There's a lot there, you know, just this, uh, transplanting of mystical narrative onto America. It's been going on since the beginning. Um, but yeah, that's, that's pretty wild dude to see that. And I recall seeing white Ibises in, uh, florida at disney world and kind of thinking the same thing you know were they yeah. white
2: yeah they were white and there were a whole bunch of them
1: so i believe white and red are the colors of, yeah. of the species that are in the western hemisphere here.
2: right and so you know their relatives their their relatives in africa or around the nile in egypt you know obviously that's where they get the god from yeah i mean if you're not literally
1: god. placing uh biblical and mythological events that are supposed to be in the near east here which we know like mormons do and uh contemporary african-american movements do so it's like you know some people literally think that this is egypt
2: (laughs) yeah yeah yeah
3: so all right that was my mardi gras experience that's cool. all right i've got a segue i've got a segue yeah awesome okay it's, 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 well, it's, it goes with the Mississippi thing. Well, I was just, you know, we're talking about like right. the whole, oh, uh, yeah. you know, Egyptian aspect of it. But you think about various mythologies overlaid on that. And, and I was telling you guys about previously about the, like looking into the Welsh, the Prince Maddox story. Yeah. Right. That, uh, that, that somehow, pre, you know, pre Columbus, uh, you know, the Welsh had made their way into, mobile and that mobile Bay and came inland to the Mississippi river also hit that and then travel up the Mississippi. But the weird thing is the stuff that I was finding and, and there's all kinds of like stories of, um, people encountering, uh, native American tribes or, uh, French, uh, you know, fur traders, you know, people that were really out in the wilderness, uh, encountering, uh, you know, uh Native American tribes that actually understood or spoke uh Welsh dialects, right? You know, yeah. there there are tons of stories like that clicked. Or looked European. Yeah, or looked European.
1: Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the
2: Mandan I think are often cited yes. as
3: being possible descendants of the Madoc yep. stuff. So, yeah. 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 The Mandan tribe. But the, you know, the the story itself seems to have been possibly right. Uh created by John D. And uh, the queen was trying to lay claim. And if they could establish that the Welsh were there, you know, early Mm. on. Um, And, but, but the story ends up getting mixed with King Arthur. Right. And this idea that Prince Maddox is actually King Arthur's, like King Arthur was Welsh. Right. There's some of these crazy researchers right in, in, uh, in the UK and one of the theories they put out this book, um, I can't remember the guy's name right now, but that basically uh, Prince Matic was King Arthur's brother. King Arthur dies and they have to flee. And so the Avalon, right, that they end up at is the new world. And they bring yep. one yep. of the stories is that they bring King Arthur's body and the Holy grail, which obviously the Holy grail is just an invented romantic device. Right. But, uh, um, maybe, but maybe, right. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. But, but, you know, whatever it embodies, but the story is, you know, that they, they brought it over here. Uh, and, uh, one of the stories, King Arthur's still alive and he ends up dying in battle in the new world. But the other story is that they, they bring his remains in one of the stories they bring his head. Right. It's like the head of King Arthur, which, kind of blends in with the idea of the Welsh head cults, right? Yeah. Um and there's like uh, the
2: Braun Braun the Blessed was yes. said to have died and that his head was preserved and I guess his his head would talk to people and these wait, type of things.
1: Wait, wait, wait though. I've got one question, Nathan. Does he end up and does the Holy Grail end up in Somerset fucking Kentucky?
3: Not quite, man, not quite, but really close. Okay. Okay. okay really that's close. Good enough. <laughs> right. Uh but but there's there are these stories that, that they came inland, right? And uh and ended up in a village called Telega, which means uh stranger to in the local sort of Dallas. Anyway, one of the thing like I have I, I found some of this stuff in a, a as a fucking joke right i was like you know it would be funny to kick off season 3 of Pennyroyal oil with this ridiculous story that king arthur ended up in kentucky right if there was a king arthur in it's tidy right I, and i really was like this will be kind of funny and then the deeper i got into it the more shit i found from people that actually legitimately believe that and there are a ton of like old re- like research at berea college uh, that uh, that I was able to inspect, right, and uh, and and look at, and uh, some of it's online, and it's from this particular professor, but it ties all the stuff together, and the whole Prince Maddox story, and like they end up in the fucking Daniel Boone National Forest, right, right, where so 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 if you look at the books that the, these guys trace this, they actually. Come inland, right? This is this is spoiler alert too. I get into, I really break it out in season okay, three, right? Cool. But they they come in, they come up the Mississippi, hit the Kentucky River, then to the Cumberland River, and end up coming to a place called Buck Creek, and that's where they go inland north to Bria. And there's a place there called the pinnacles and there's all kinds of weird shit. That's been found there. Supposedly a, a suit of Welsh armor was found there also. And if, if you look at, and so I I was doing separate research on these mounds in Kentucky and there are six mounds in Pulaski County uh, and there are four on Buck Creek and two on Pittman. Pittman is where Dan Dutton's farm is located on Highway 39, right? Which we've and been to. Yeah. Which you've been to. So right there across from Dan's uh, farm, this is where one of the mounds is supposedly located on it, this other farm over there. But as you... Buck Creek hits Pittman Creek. So where Buck Creek is... There are these stone graves, and they're made. They're mounds, and they're made from rounded stones. And so uh, Funkhauser, some of these early archaeologists in Kentucky, referred to them as the Stone Grave people because they were completely different than the other burial mounds that were Adena or Hopewell, right? Like Mississippian culture. Mm-hmm. And so, but the uh, the other culture that does this stone grave burial is the Welsh, right? And uh, so I was looking at that and where those mounds are located is right where Buck Creek hits the Cumberland, where these other researchers believe that the Welsh explorers went inland. And if you go north the way they go to Berea, it's the, the fucking uh, Mount Victory Mine. Like where all this weird stuff has happened, where the center of the Kentucky anomaly, all that stuff, when you map that all down, that's exactly where I pull up this map. That's exactly where these people are saying this, the, that this happened, right? And I'm like, that's weird, right? That's a weird layering on top of everything else of someone that doesn't know anything about any of the, the research. I mean, this is back in the 80s that they were pushing some of these theories, uh, and actually, naming Buck Creek and and Cumberland River, and and pinpointing this to a town on the other side of the Daniel Boone National Forest, um, and that was supposedly the last resting place of the Holy Grail, is what. That's <laughs> what they well, argue, right? It sounds okay. like you got a treasure hunt waiting we're, for you there.
2: We're we're yeah, that's it. We're going up there to find the Holy Grail.
1: <laughs> I've always wanted to.
2: Remember, don't drink the one that's ornate. You gotta drink the the one that like uh, that looks like the, the cup of a, of a first century car. I
1: was looking for Jesse James treasure, but I think uh, well Jesse that James might pop, up, in... but it might have to put that on hold for the Holy Grail. Although,
2: how do you yeah, know that Jesse James did go up there find the Holy Grail? Took it to Nashville to help the wasn't. Confederacy
3: win. Hey man, he was, yeah he was in the fucking night uh, <laughs> the KGC, uh, right? you know, you know, Confederate it's interesting. and an It's interesting you mentioned that because, um,
2: back in September with the paramania paramania guys, we went to, we were, we in new England and we went to New Hampshire. We went to America's Stonehenge and I don't quite know what to make of America's Stonehenge. Um, it's an interesting place. Um, but it's like, it's one of those places where you kind of like, this is a little dubious and a little weird. Like, is this it's one of those kind of pseudo archaeological things, but they're pretty serious about it. And they, you know, I think they they trace some of that to the Welsh stuff and uh, Henry Sinclair, which I think some of that stuff is entirely possible. Um, I don't I'm not one of these people that's like, you know, Columbus, you actually absolutely has to be Columbus. And to kind of go back to what you're talking about with um, King Arthur and Avalon. I mean, a lot of people have speculated about that because Avalon is supposedly this Island that lies off to the West. And, you know, so how do we know that some of the information from the Vikings, which we know were there uh, in Newfoundland or maybe even ver- a little further South, how do we know some of that did not get, you know, was not passed down, especially with yeah. all the Viking influence in, in,
1: in England or someone yeah. else, the Phoenicians or yeah. who, you know, yeah. who knows? Yeah. Egyptians. I mean,
3: right. I mean, I- I still think that there's something to the whole story that, that they found that cache of Egyptian artifacts in, in the uh, the Grand Canyon and the Smithsonian took it, right? I love that story. Well, yeah, that's a good one. I'm going to let
1: Serfiel tackle that one. Huh? Yeah, no. I mean...
3: But that's I, all bullshit, right?
1: Uh, I mean, I wasn't there, so... You
3: know. Well, it's all
2: about treasure hunting, man. You know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. All about the, speaking of all man, about the journey, not you, the not you the you touched
1: briefly on uh on your grandfather, and if you don't want to go into it, you know, feel free. But you said that uh he was a treasure hunter. What kind of treasure was he after?
3: So the um this Jonathan Swift silver mines. Uh, I, I don't know if you guys are familiar with that story when you were living down in Tennessee. So that, there were stories that that back in the I think this is late 1700s early 1800s but like pre-civil war there was a character like a pioneer you know backwoods dude that had found um uh, a native american sort of silver mine where they were they were getting some silver he ends up t- t- sort of taking it mining all the silver and uh and so it ended up being John, John, Jonathan Swift's silver mines. I don't know if the if he actually existed or not. He's one of those like mysterious characters yeah. that that could have been a cognate for somebody else, right? Yeah. Uh, but there are a lot of people that have searched for his gold. Um, he had a journal. Um, there's a lot of other like elements to it, but um, but the big thing is that everybody was looking for they they pinpoint it in the myth. And if you just Google Jonathan Swift's silver mines. Uh, or jonathan swift silver you'll find tons of articles online right it's like uh, like an old american legend and um they pinpoint the location of the silver mine to jillicoe right and there are two jillicoes in the in, in the area where he could have hid the gold where he was operating in sort of uh, eastern appalachia and one of the jillicoes is in tennessee just as you're about to like not where the Smokies are, but it's like pretty far South of us. Right. And then there's a Jellico in McGoffin County where I grew up and there it's like this crazy uh, area with all these caves. They have a tea kettle rock. Like it's just, there, there are a lot of like weird structures and weird rock structures and the uh, army Corps of engineer ended up flooding it to make a lake. And uh, prior to that, so that's what my my mother's father was it was pretty bad, like you know, alcoholic who <laughs> didn't like couldn't hold a job, you know what I mean? Like was was always off, sort of drunk looking for this treasure and would come home late into the night and would be rambling and rambling about yeah. these crazy treasures and finding these things, you know. That's um, wild, dude. And he but he looked all over Jellico. So my parents always told me about that he, he died like way before i uh, mm-hmm. you know as an alcoholic died but uh but i always heard these stories and my mom was always afraid that like i would end up like him and be chasing after like weird shit and rambling yeah. about crazy stuff which <laughs> i ended up doing <laughs> you know so well, yeah yeah you know some of that's probably genetic but uh uh, but I, I've always loved that story, though you know, and I would, yeah, uh, you know, yeah. I, was I romanticized it. She doesn't have good memories of it because right. it was like her father was a, you know, a crazy alcoholic looking for treasure. But you know, I, as an adult, I've sort of looked at it and thought, man, that's crazy. I've even tried to find, like, tried to go back and see if I could find documentation and and places that he went to, but no one's ever found it. There are tons of treasure articles about this, but it's either in jillicoe tennessee or jillicoe uh mcgoffin county you know Um cool. so yeah it's really crazy
1: well treasure hunting's in your blood yeah man
2: <laughs> the eternal quest, eternal quest.
1: <laughs> let's uh let's
2: let's talk a little bit what you got going on nathan um you sent me this so say so we talk about the the hidden in the herd podcast and we talked about spinning roll season three
1: which anyone uh, who uh was at strange realities last year probably got yep. a pretty good preview of some of this research he's doing
2: yes they did um and you talking about uh associated with the uh hidden in the herd and the cattle mutilation stuff you said the tale of two flickingers so what are we dealing with here
3: dude i think that's one of the like the the hidden in the herd story in that research it's six episodes there it's a lot shorter than penny royal you know um but uh six 30 to 40 minute episodes when is it coming out, out uh, like late summer um okay. you know hopefully we'll have penny royal out in the next month or two and then i I've been sort of doing both parallel to each other so like while I was finishing up gotcha. production on penny roll i was interviewing people uh for the hidden in the herd and that's all just i mean it's so much of it overlaps with penny royal right guest wise and and just research sort of went that way um but uh, yeah you're gonna love how it all ties together it is really cool and it involves folklore and these ideas of like ostension and stuff but um and nazis right we're always finding nazis always <laughs> The fucking it's like
1: indiana jones yeah, yeah. It's,
3: it's, it's the nazis keep popping up um but the one of the craziest fucking things man that popped out of the research was and and it's like a footnote in the story and the history of the cattle mutilation panic but they they hired this guy there, there was a a man in, um, in a prisoner that uh I think it was the Marion State or Marion prison. It's like the second Supermax prison. Uh outside of it. There's Alcatraz and then this other prison. And this this guy, this prisoner, was writing all these letters to powerful people, senators, and s- supposedly he was listening to um what the other inmates were saying and like jotting down their plots, right? And then reaching out to the authorities saying, if you'll get me out of here. I've got information on this or that. Right. And so this all coincided with the cattle mutilation panic. And so he writes to, to, uh, I think uh, this Minnesota Senator and says, I know who's behind the cattle mutilations. It's a, this satanic nationwide satanic cult, right. Called the sons of Satan. I've got information. I can tell you what they're doing and, um, and I know someone who was in, in it and they're going to start sacrificing humans. Right. And they're going to assassinate all of these politicians. So the Senator uh, ends up uh, talking to um, Jerome Clark. He knew Jerome Clark, right. And knew that Jerome Clark was working with Jay Allen Hynek on the UFO stuff. And so he gives him the letters And uh, says, we want to look into this to see if there there is any, if it isn't UFOs, that it is this satanic cult, right? So Heineck had an ATF agent that was his sort of like lead investigator. And his name was special agent uh, Donald E. Flickinger, okay? Mm -hmm. And this dude worked for NICAP. And worked for uh, this, the the uh, Center for UFO Studies, and he would go out and interview people. But his day job was at working for the Treasury Department, and which the ATF at the time was still under the Treasury Department. Okay. And they take they task him and and Jerome Clark and this other guy, right? And I, I don't want to reveal all the stuff, yeah, but yeah. But, uh, but they they have this other guy with them, and I and and they describe him as a uh, pair he was a paratrooper with the military and so they like go to interview this prisoner about this and it, so it's jerome clark ufo investigator this atf agent flickinger and this other guy who's a former special forces paramilitary guy or uh, you know a paratrooper guy and i read that and i was like well that's kind of weird why would they allow that guy to go with him to to quit to interrogate literally interrogate this prisoner right and anyway this guy tells him that he has evidence that this cult uh it, which is aligned with white supremacy okay and with like some nazi shit and biker gangs has been casing nuclear uh missile silos and is going to steal a nuclear warhead And has already stolen nuclear material and is going to set it off in America and that they've been sacrificing those people. So it was enough credible information that for the next like six or seven months, Flickinger and this this ex-military guy are like Mulder and Scully. And they start traveling around the country following all the leads that this guy is giving them about these occult murders and magical rituals and so i've been getting all these documents together and basically put together a history of who donald you know e flickinger was but while i was researching it i kept running into another donald flickinger who is a major part of ufo lore and he is donald d flickinger and he is a navy admiral who pioneered the U-2 space program and was one of the first uh, people stationed at Groom Lake, which eventually became Area 51. And later in life, he becomes Kit Green's mentor. and, and prov-
0: Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McKrispie sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time.
1: And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price.
0: ba 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 Bides
3: Kit Green with information about the autopsy of aliens at, at Area 51, right? And his name is Donald D. Flickinger. So like these two Flickingers, two Donald Flickingers, which is a really unique name, right? It doesn't seem like it's super common. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Right. Are both involved in this. So anyway, I've I've put together, which is it's basically, it's going to be season two of Hidden in the Herd is a tale of two Flickingers. And it takes the story even further. But I was like, man, this is like X-Files shit you know, or like true detective that these two guys are running around. And the kicker was the ex military guy that was with him. Turns out to be a fucking CIA agent who was with operation 40 and the anti-Castro shit. And like that guy has a gigantic file, like wrote a book, said the government was trying to kill him. And like, there he was running around the country with an atf agent chasing down a satanic biker cult trying to steal nuclear weapons right isn't
1: that amazing (laughs) was a cool movie i guess it's at least somewhat real life it's crazy dude
3: but they end up finding nothing (laughs) <laughs> that's that's the thing right you know like that's why it's a footnote right it's a footnote in the story of the cattle mutilations because it's like right yeah. they didn't find anything but it's like when you pull the documents you're like but why were they go like why were they allowed to do this for so long and like chasing down murders in wisconsin and traveling to all these different states because the fbi did would the fbi would not actually investigate cattle mutilations well, like there is an F- official FBI cattle mutilation report, but it, it centers on the red tape of not being able to investigate cattle mutilations because they don't deem it interstate, right? So they can't be called in the yeah. only, the only 15 uh, actual cattle mutilations that they look at are on native American reservations. And there's a great research paper written by a native American scholar about this and the fact that the FBI became the invading aliens on these reservations, looking for cattle mutilations that the native Americans did not. You know what I'm saying? It was like, it was an excuse because the native, the, some of the native American reservations were anti us government. And this was when there was like a bunch of protests against the government. the, so American, the so after-
1: government stuff, Yeah, wounded knee yeah Yeah,
3: exactly right so the fbi used the cattle mutilation thing to gain access and they weren't investigating cattle mutilations they were investigating the tribes themselves for anti-us activities yeah anyway (laughs) fucked up
1: that's awesome (laughs) no that's how these things go um can you for anyone who wasn't able to see your presentation or, or isn't a hasn't been uh, a following your stuff or your Patreon recently. Can you kind of give a, a a brief summary of hidden in the herd with this upcoming podcast and and what
3: it's about? Yeah, totally. Uh, So basically I I started looking at, at the cattle mutilation stuff and I, I wondered if it was like alchemical because of the blood being missing, right. From the bodies. And like a lot of it centered on what, what's called the mineral triangle of, uh, of colorado and so it's like here's this place where most of these uh sort of alchemical min- minerals are being taken out of the earth and there are all these you know dead cows with their blood missing so i thought man could this be alchemical um and when i really got into it though i, I quickly found out that like most of the stories were bullshit right and uh, i i wrote a FOIA request to like 21 states and all these agencies and got tons of documents. i have like uh, video like actual body cam footage of investigations of cattle mutilations in the last few years right uh new mexico had those and like um the biggest one was colorado and like in the mid 70s uh that was supposedly the largest investigation that the colorado bureau of investigation ever carried out and so like I wrote them and and they've initially told me they didn't have any documents. And I'm like, I sent the newspaper articles to them. And I said, Hey, for sure. Like you have documents. Cause it says this is the biggest investigation up through the 1970s. So they spend the next few weeks and they find the box, but no one's ever requested the box or looked at the box since, since 1976 or whenever it was. Right. So they charged me a fortune to redact the documents Cause they were like, if you're going to be the first one that gets these, you have to pay the redaction fees. <laughs> so I had to pay $800 right. To get these documents, uh, you know, redacted and they send them to me. And then, and, the, and mind you uh, everything in the, all the newspapers and everything there, all these people were saying, all the officials was 10,000 cattle mutilations. Right. And I get the box and it's like 300 pages. And it's like, nothing's there right and it's obvious that they did not do any of this stuff that they said and didn't take it seriously it was just a political thing and like I start digging deeper into it and I also find just this crazy story of a guy named Dane Edwards who was with this small newspaper called the Brush Banner and he was really the guy on the ground that was writing all these stories and when he would write a story it would get picked up by you know 4,000 newspapers across the US right about the cattle mutilations and then he's telling everyone he's getting really close to solving it. He knows what's going on. And then he fucking vanishes. Right. And I thought, my God, this is the greatest story ever. And uh, later I find out he resurfaces, you know, year, a few years later with another family. And like when he was at the brush banner, he was on his second family and he was a con man, like a grifter. And like most of the stories about cattle mutilation and the number ten thousand came from this guy. He's and, the source uh, for all that. Yeah, and and so like then I start you know you start questioning all the stuff and you start looking deeper, and you know I didn't realize that the time that the cattle mutilation panic happened was like the worst time in the cattle industry right in in history, and uh, it cost more to bring a cow to market than it did to kill it right at one point because the the there were the feed prices were super high grain you know we were sending grain to africa there was a lot of starvation happening so like grain was going to Africa. It wasn't going to, uh, to these ranches. This was exactly the time too, that the federal government decided the, uh, Bureau of land management decided to take away public grazing rights. And so all these, uh, ranches that had five, you know, a million head of cattle suddenly had to only graze on their land. And, and I didn't know any of this stuff. I found an article about, a, a the sagebrush rebellion, Uh, that a a professor named Michael Goldman had written. And he kind of floated this idea that maybe because during the Sagebrush Rebellion, these anti U.S. government groups and and they were really sort of aligned with like the John Birch Society and a lot of like militia movements. They were trying to radicalize ranchers against the federal government during this whole Sagebrush Rebellion thing. And, and, And he kind of just mentioned like it's kind of odd that these cattle started showing up dead, uh, you know, during this time period. And, uh, and so I just got deeper into that research and, and found a lot of stuff about uh, psychological warfare. Uh, you know, a lot of the, you know, Edward Lansdale that faked the vampire killings uh, in, and right. right. the Korean war, you know, he's training the, the Vietnam soldiers, how to, to stage these things. And most yeah, of his, them- a lot of his stuff was a precursor to Phoenix, the Phoenix program. Yes yeah exactly yeah so you know these guys are coming back from uh vietnam they're not being welcomed with open arms back into society but these paramilitary groups militias are getting them you know uh and you start to see this oh and the the biggest thing too is the black helicopters right people weren't associating cattle mutilations with ufos they were associating them with black helicopters Mm. and specifically the whole black helicopter mythos started in 1967 with the John Birch Society. They had published articles in American Opinion, their their publication, that said that the UN was invading America using these black helicopters, mm-hmm. right? And the the craziest thing that I that I started looking into was that were there actual silent black helicopters,
1: right? Right?
3: And and you you actually find out that Howard Hughes was was given a contract by the Department of Defense to create a, a basically a completely silent black helicopter. It was called a black helicopter. Um, it's the I, I, I pulled up the the name of here I can't remember, but it's yeah the Hughes 500. It was called the quiet one and it was used in Vietnam. Uh, it was called the OH6A Loach, which is uh, abbreviated abbreviation for light observation helicopter. And supposedly this helicopter could fly uh, within, it's like within 200 feet of a target before you started to hear sound. And it still is considered the most advanced stealth helicopter, you know, that size. You know, no one's ever been, been able to improve on it. But see, Hughes was one of the largest landowners in Montana during this time, right, that the, and and his wife was this huge. Uh, I think it was his second wife or third wife ha- had all these head heads of cattle, and I'd floated that idea. Well, then Adam Go Rightly sent me uh, some some research that he had uh, gotten from David Perkins because Perkins had filed a FOIA request about uh, helicopter fly incursions on U.S. bases. It was like he knew if he said. If you have any UFO sightings, he'd get nothing, right? But he he apparently filed a FOIA request for any type of uh, illegal uh, uh, helicopter incursions at at U.S. bases, and there was one, and they produced these documents, and they caught it was like a black helicopter, and it turned out to be an unmarked Hughes helicopter. It tied back to the Howard Hughes Company, and it had, and so anyway. That's the the hidden herd has become sort of is that story of this uh, other narrative, uh, sort of alternative narrative and theory about what actually was going on, that that there was a lot of militia movements, uh, you know, anti U.S. government, anti federal government groups that knew how to stage, you know, a cattle mutilation to try to radicalize people to overthrow the U S government. And the John Birch society is thrown in there. I've got all kinds of documents about that. Um, And it's, it's just a bigger story about, you know, white supremacy. Um,
0: Yeah. It it, it,
1: it creates like you, it it creates a lot of the first satanic cult murder scares. Right. So it's kind of also responsible partially for some of the satanic panic ideation that happened
3: yeah and and honestly like the groups that were like remember when the the mcmartin stuff happened and jessica remembers uh uh, like when when that went down the police officers were already receiving cult training but not not for that it was for the cattle mutilation stuff they believed the cult groups were mutilating these cattle so they started having police officer conferences on how to identify occult elements in crimes and like this is the precursor to to mcmartin right like these guys were already primed to be like oh yeah well we've been looking for a cult since they've been slaughtering all these cows right and and it just like fell into place um it's just weird, man. It's like a, a weird story, and like the the craziest thing, as it always is with this stuff, too, is I start trying to track down Michael Goldman that wrote the the article about the Sagebrush Rebellion and and look into that, and I, I'm like, boom! Here he's teaching at fucking Somerset Community College here in the town I'm fucking in. That's okay. Convenient. <laughs> so so that out. was weird. I haven't. I, he has yet to. Okay. entertain me <laughs> um, go knock we'll, on his door Shit. we'll see we'll see if i can i can pull that off but he's he's a major part of the story um but you know one of the other the other crazy two, the things i want to mention is that you know one of these militia mu- movements uh, this guy named DePew, he uh was an actual animal veterinarian and had a, a bio lab company that developed like animal drugs and he, he formed the, the uh, I think it was the Montana Minutemen, right? And he wanted to do a domestic terror attack on, on people in America, uh, and he was going to use nicotine sulfate, right? He said it was the perfect uh, drug to attack people with. And when I got the forensic, like the autopsy stuff from Colorado, and then other researchers too have have mentioned this, they started finding in these cows that were mutilated nicotine sulfate. So here's this, you know, right-wing militia guy who's taking on all of these trained, you know, ex-Vietnam soldiers that know about psychological warfare. He's talking about psychological warfare and he's stockpiling large amounts of nicotine sulfate and that nicotine sulfate ends up in these cattle that it it would be used to knock them out and then to stage the mutilation. And like, that was a common chemical that was found over and over again uh, in the cattle that were mutilated. So
2: do you get the feeling from listening, listening to this and what you're, what you're saying as uh, as I'm listening to this, I'm thinking, you know the whole idea of strategy of tension you know do you get the feeling that in the seventies and in the eighties we were going through something like that we're probably really going through it now yes yeah, definitely but but now. but 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 I feel but I feel like you know I mean I read you know McGowan's book you know what was it uh program to kill Mm-hmm. There's not a lot of stock I put in that book, but I think some of his basic thesis may be correct. He was probably just overlooking some things, or he got too caught up in, in the satanic panic mytho- mythos. But you feel like there is that kind of like this that there was this broad-based kind of psychological warfare that was going on. And that it was, you, you know, it was it was being you. I mean, you could really make a case that, you know it was being used to push a real kind of more conservative agenda.
3: Oh, for sure, man. And then like, if you read uh, Bill Ellis, folklorist Bill Ellis, and he really is kind of like got me started on some of this stuff too, because he writes about ostention. And like when I was looking at a lot of the, the local Penny Royal lore about the murders and how the murders were like different murders that had come together, uh, you know, a mixture of stories. And then it yeah. generated this story of a cult, right? So that's called ostension, And it's like the folklore itself isn't true, right? Like it never happened. Like someone might say, well, there's a cult in town. Well, then these high school kids go out, right? And they spray paint occult symbols and act like a cult. And then right. it perpetuates. Right. So that that in and right. of itself is ostention, right? And that's how a lot of these things get started. And Bill Ellis wrote a lot about that. And he wrote this book about... Um, the Devil, was called Raising the Devil. It's an incredible book. It's a collection of his essays, and it tracks the movement of the satanic panic all the way back to the 1930s to the charismatic movement, the revival movement in England. And it was an anti-folk magic movement. And it eventually became like all of the, the megachurches where they would strike the person in the head and say, healed right all of that came came from this and so he tracks cattle mutilations the charismatic movement and then gets into the McMartin stuff and it's like all of these things come together at this one moment when the political when basically Christian nationalism yep. emerged and yep. Reagan takes over and he's like hey Christian nationalists <laughs> you know like I'm your man yep. and so like, He shows how that happens. And I'm telling you, man, it's one of the most incredible books and I didn't know anything about the history of charismatics, but like, that's a major influence. And it's like a major influence on parts of our lives that we don't even realize, like we've taken for, for, you know, granted that that things are the way they are because of some pretty esoteric shit that happened a long time ago that no one's ever going to teach you about in history class. Right. But it really did happen. And, um, I yeah, mean, it's just, it, it it's crazy. But yeah, I, I definitely think that there is, I, I don't know if there was a nationwide psych, like orchestrated psychological warfare thing, but I do think psychological warfare was like in vogue at that time. And different groups knew how to right. enact it and use it. And, and I think it was coming from various angles. Right?
2: Well, you know, I mean, the media in the 80s really picked up on it just big time and it magnified the effect exponentially
0: uh-huh.
2: i mean i can i can remember i mean i remember I, mean, I was a kid but i remember that i mean i remember you know i remember being told in halloween you know about razors in your apples and all those satanists are going to chase you through the woods and you know, I I remember all these things, and it just the, it was just something that just got embedded into your psyche.
1: the The media is essential to the entire concept yeah. of strategy of tension, right? And that right that comes from from Italy, right? More than anything, yeah.
2: It was yeah during the years of lead. This is this yeah. is yeah. the idea that that um this is the idea that you just you're just constantly keeping the populace just on their toes you're through not, the through not actions that get
1: to
3: rest, yeah. yeah. Right. which
1: would have just been like TV and newspapers at that time. But yeah. 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 Th-
3: th- think about this too, man. Like the, um, like you just, like I grew up at the same time. Right. And I remember I was, ter- you know, my parents terrified me of like, they're going to snatch you. The Satanists are driving around in fucking vans. Oh, yeah. You know, they're poisoning oh, yeah. the candy, but mm-hmm. like the, the crazy thing about the, the razor blades and the candy. Right. Again, Bill Ellis talks about that in his book. He's got a whole essay about it because a kid ends up dead Right. in, I think this was in Ohio and uh, the father, right, is like it was the candy. He ate a fucking razor blade. Satanist killed my kid. Well, later, it turns out that the dad murdered his son and used the story, the folklore of the Satanist and razor blades as a cover. But the news media picked up on it, man. And it became like common knowledge that that was a thing. But it wasn't. It was simply a cover that that guy used.
2: Yeah, uh, Nevea wrote about this on her channel on uh, for uh, Nevea's Nightmare. Just quick little plug there. Um, The guy, it was he poisoned the candy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. And um, you know, like that from that one case, like that magnified. But that was very much a part, and that was in the seventies. Mm-hmm. but that was very much a part of the satanic panic i mean it was just it was just all one and the same um just that you had um you know the, the, it, it was it, you know they, they talk about how you know there's these memes about how you know gen x we were like these free-range kids but we really weren't our parents were horrified by what they were seeing on national news that they thought the satanists were going to come get us
3: yeah yes you know, or the UN. It was either the sickness or the UN. Or the, the new world order was coming. But <laughs> yeah, see, you yeah. know,
2: we're we're back in that now because we're in a new satanic panic with QAnon. <laughs> I mean, it's it's the same thing basically. Yeah, yep. I don't want to beat that to death because we did that in the last episode. But <laughs> I agree with you, though. You're right. Yes. Yeah. Um. So, a couple another interesting thing there that, that you noted um, about the Hopkinsville Goblin case. You looking at that a little bit more?
3: Man, I, I highly urge everyone to go to the Center for UFO Studies website and deeply embedded in there. I'll send you the link, but uh, I don't think you can Google this and find this, but like, as you dig deeper into their actual website, uh, you will find their publications. And one of them is uh, Isabel Davis's encounter at Kelly, right? And the close encounter at Kelly. And I think she wrote it in 78, but she... Uh, was uh, an investigator with Heinrich's uh, Center for UFO Studies, and she went there in '56. So, like you know, August the twentieth, I think, or twenty-first, uh, nineteen fifty-five is when the Kelly Hopkinsville case happened in Kelly Kentucky, Kelly Station, Kentucky, uh, yeah. which was a was just a few miles north of Hopkinsville, right? And uh, and everybody knows that story. I mean, that's where the the con- concept of little green men, or you know, the news media picked that up. Um, really strange case, you know, the Sutton family ends up getting into a gunfight, you know, with supposedly with these things, but I knew like the popular story, but when you read her, her um, her book, which I forget the other guy that write she has a co-writer with it. He does the introduction and in the, in the, in the sort of the end of the book, the epilogue and, she went there 10 months after it happened and interviewed all these people and got all these documents, got documents from Project Blue Book, puts all this stuff together. And I didn't know any of this shit, right? It's like, did you, and maybe you guys know this, right? Maybe, maybe you guys are familiar with this. I did not know that uh, a state police officer, there were all these meteor sightings, right? green You remember project twinkle and the green meteors that the u.s government was was trying to track down because they were seeing all these crazy green meteors uh in the 40s and uh early 50s well there there are these before the kelly hopkinsville thing happened earlier that night a state police officer and other witnesses saw these green meteors and actually heard the booms of them entering the atmosphere Hmm. A few miles south of the Kelly farm, which I thought was strange, you know, that they had that this whole meteor things in it. And then the family they're they were Pentecostals and uh, miss, I think her name's Lankford. It, it, you know, she's the actual wife of uh, Tillman Sutton. And so you've got Lucky Sutton was her son. And so like he and his wife and then another couple have been working for the circus. So people have often said it was, they were skeptical because they were circus reformers. Right. But they show up. they carnies, form. they're carnies, man. They know yeah. how to see people, you know, okay. but, but they know how to make a good story. Right. Uh, and so that's like one of the primary things that skeptics, se- skeptics say, what I did not know was that they were Pente- Pentecostal, Holy rollers. And she States to Isabel Davis or States in one of these interviews, that right when this happened that they earlier that day they were at the pentecostal church and they were in a religious fervor like a trance right? right and on the way home they were discussing a pamphlet that she had gotten from um a religious service like a clipping that she had asked to be sent to her and it is a picture of these two men holding a little silver man. That's the size of a monkey between them. Right. And it's a famous hoax. April, the first photo. Right. I know the
2: picture you're talking right? about. Right.
3: Yeah. They're in uniform and they have, yes, the- yes, yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. Yeah. Yeah. So that was like 52, right. Or uh, 51 or 52. So she had a copy of that sent to her by a Texas religious publisher who was was touting that photo as something about you know angels and devils and shit and they were on their way home from this religious meeting where they got worked up she said into a, a religious fervor and on the radio on the in the car on the way home they heard one of these religious shows uh, church shows that was being broadcast preachers bring up that photo and she went home and dug the photo out, and then two hours later, they were besieged by these little silver men, right? And like, I've never heard that before. (laughs) And then like, after all that shit happens, all the men leave and drive to Evansville, Indiana. And it's like, why did they, in it for another like church meeting. And so I don't know, man, that definitely there's a lot of other stuff in that report. I just think that any, like, if you have the chance, read the report. Like, it is incredible, you know, In like, in the field investigative reporting on high strangeness. But there are so many details. And it's like, you know, one of the foundational seminal cases in ufology, right? And there's just tons of stuff that you've never heard, you know, glowing spots in the grass, like, all kinds of weird, like, the meteor shit was weird. Um, obviously, the Air Force showed up. And then, you know, I've always wondered if there wasn't some connection because of the whole John Mulholland thing, you know, the magician for the CIA, and he shows up in 55 too, right? Or 56, like the year after and is tasked with looking at it. And it's like, you know, was LSD going around at the time, you know, and like MK Ultra started in 53 and this is 55, right? right? right where they Uh, (laughs)
1: following?
2: well you had to wonder what i'm surprised that that actually kind of does surprise me because i I, I, how much in circulation was that was that photograph i I mean i i remember seeing it i mean i'm kind of looking for it because i think it's in uh jerome clark's book here but anyway (laughs) um you know but also just the the proximity to fort campbell
3: Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the thing too. It's like immediately there were what there were four people, four MPs from Fort Campbell uh, showed up at the farm the night that it happened with all the the police officers. Right.
2: I mean, you 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 do wonder about that because um, Flatwoods Monster is around the same time, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and you could really make a case that Flatwoods Monster was some kind of. psychological warfare device yeah
3: yeah let's
2: see what let's see what these yokels do uh, and and you could really base that on um during world war ii there was a british psychological warfare officer that built these big scarecrows and these things would um they would emit like smoke and they had glowing eyes and they fit very well with the flatwoods monster like nick redfern's done a lot of work on that but I wonder about the Kelly green man and whether or not there was something, some psychological warfare aspect to it too.
3: And and like four months earlier, uh, there was um, uh, another sighting in Ohio and it was uh, the original Loveland frog sighting happened in 55, like in March. Right. And Mm -hmm. uh, again, it happens in 72, but the original sighting, was they saw meteors in the sky, a similar mm-hmm. sort of thing, and uh, and then saw these like little green, you know, little little reptilian looking dudes, right? Um, the the drawing also of the craft uh, that that was seen by I forget if it was Taylor, or one of the, one of the guys that went out to get water uh, at the uh, Kelly Farm or at the Sutton Farm uh, s- saw this craft, and he describes it as egg shaped. Right, And so like he draws it and it's the exact drawing it matches the exact drawing of the Lochland UFO that was sighted near where Loveland is, right uh, which that uh, this is back in 1898 there's the famous Lachland Ohio UFO and it mm. is this egg-shaped thing but like side by side the drawings are almost identical right
2: yeah that's that's pretty fascinating i I never heard that that they it's almost like they were psychologically primed.
3: Mm-hmm. Definitely
2: they were the perfect people to target. Yeah. Right. <laughs> well, they're in the middle of nowhere. They're in this little farm.
1: They have a very and, enchanted worldview.
2: Yeah. So, oh. I mean, if we were talking about like mass hysteria, I mean, you know, that would have been a good thing, a good way to study that. Mm-hmm.
3: And if you look at her report too, you know, we always hear the story that there was this shootout, right. And they had these guns and they fired 200 shots. Well, the actual police report shows the window they shot through and it's not, not bullet holes and it's not new. And like, they only found two shells outside and one shell spent shell inside, but all were old. And so like, and then they interviewed neighbors and the neighbors said they didn't hear any gunshots. Right. (laughs) And it's so crazy. it's like, it's crazy. you know, but she covers all that. Of course, she's like, no, I found someone else who said they did hear it. I can't account for those, the, you know, where all the shells are. But it definitely like she basically is like, it definitely happened. And I'm like, I don't know, man. <laughs> this all sounds pretty suspect. Like something happened, I think, for yeah, sure. Happened. It's so, crazy you know.
1: to think, though, that yeah. there might have been this little window of time where all these like rogue." Agents were just dosing hillbillies across the country. Yes, dude. <laughs> dude. What about the stuff we haven't heard about? You know, like the stories yeah. people didn't want to tell because it would, you know, ruin their reputation, or like how many people well <laughs>
2: we we know from uh what was I think the church committee went through yeah. all this. You know, we know that um in major cities they were dosing, you know, prostitutes. Prostit-
3: operation climax where they were right. doing I mean that these
2: things these things were going on. Yeah. Prostitutes and yeah. their johns. I mean they were doing this. I mean and that's documented. That's not that's yeah. not
1: fiction. So could could a lot of this like yeah. cryptid and UFO stuff be the rural side effects of the same well documented MKULTRA experimentation on urban people?
2: That's what I was that's what a- I am that's why I'm, yeah. I'm saying like well, let's see what the yokels do. I mean, it was basically. It it could have just been a way to study. If we do this, let's see what the result is, and let's see how we can apply this. You know, in Vietnam, or you know, wherever, whatever. You know, you know. I mean, they were. I mean, the the Wandering Soul. We mentioned the Phoenix Program. I mean, that was straight out of. I mean that that was using religiosity and religious beliefs and supernatural beliefs against a population.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Well, think about it too like if you were going to do this type of warfare like co- just think cold war, right? If you were testing LSD on urban populations, which we know they did, right? We they we know that that was an actual thing. You would also because yeah. most of the population is in the in in the non-urban, right? The rural areas, you'd also have to test it there. There would just be less likelihood that you would get caught.
1: Yeah, and stereotypically yeah. those are going to be people who are more religious, who are more superstitious, and maybe they, you know, just got more space to see wild shit like this than if you're in a fucking high-rise building somewhere or in some prostitution den, you know. Like Well, that's- I
2: think all you would I think all you would really have to do is dress up in some kind of um either brightly colored or even black clothing. And you just start harassing these people, and then their imaginations will just fill in the rest. Yeah, well, that's well, the, the thing used rugs or anything like that.
3: Well, well, think about this too like the with the uh Hopkinsville encounter, she she interviews all these people, and the police do too. They only saw because we're always told it was an army of these creatures, right? They were all right. over the house and, and crawling all over the house, but in the actual, like it's pointed out in this report that only one was ever seen at any one time. And right. there was only one siding for a brief moment that two were together. So like yeah. there were actually never seen more than two things that looked yeah. very puppet, like, right. Yeah. And they dinged like metal and f- twisted upside down and twirled. Right. And it's like, that doesn't sound like fucking aliens. It sounds like a little robotic, puppet thing or whatever you know what i'm saying but it's like someone's got something on a fucking stick outside their window (laughs) you know yeah yeah and i mean
2: one pulled the hair right i mean that could have been it it just that could have been touched his hair
3: yeah it just touched his hair they saw a tiny claw touches right
2: if you terrorize people enough (laughs) there's a their imaginations are just going to run 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 right there's a
3: there's a great like excerpt in the report, too, that she includes where it's like one of the women who a lot of them were like, I didn't see anything because I wouldn't allow myself to look at them. Right. And so this one woman says, I only got one look and I was laying asleep and she's like, I rolled over and it was I pressed its face against the window and slowly brought up a little claw and tapped the window. <laughs> And like it's it's just sounds so fucking ridiculous, yeah. dude. You know,
1: <laughs> CIA's puppeteers.
3: <laughs> Where Jim Henson
1: got to oh, start? Man. Oh, 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 this was the, <laughs> this is the
3: other this is the other thing too that I found, which I think this is a possible thing too. All right, check this out. The while I was doing the research on Flickinger. Right the The Donald D. Flickinger. I'm looking at that and the groom Lake U2 plane program, right? And dude, the when they they started the U2 flights, test flights in August 1955 and were cr- and a bunch of them crashed. and they were top secret flights that crashed and they had to stage shit to recover the craft. So what if they were flying a fucking U-2 plane across the country in August and it fucking crashed in Kelly fucking Hopkinsville, outside of Hopkinsville. And like they actually staged this to cover up the recovery because every single one of the uh, like police, state police, everybody for a number of hours goes to this farm. And like they could have been doing that. And then over here we're Mm -hmm. recovering a spy plane. Well, the more
1: ridiculous you make it, then, you know, anyone who does see anything to do with that other thing, they'll be like, Oh, you must be looking for goblins boy. You know, exactly. Exactly. And because the, the the U2 was not
2: known about until Gary powers crashed over the Soviet Union. Yes.
3: Yes. Yeah. And so like, the guy that designed the suit that Gary Powers wore was Donald Flickinger. He was the pioneer of this, like, uh, basically he built the astronaut spacesuits too. Like he pioneered all of that shit and like, uh, you know, Gary Powers was wearing his suit when he crashed, you know? Interesting.
1: What, uh? so what exactly was uh, the, Donald D. Flick, Flick,
3: Flickinger's title. He was he became an admiral, so it's uh, Naval Admiral Doctor Donald D. Flickinger, and he was a specialist in air. with I the arrow. He worked with NASA also, but he was uh, one of the original. Like when Groom Lake was established for the YouTube program, uh, he was there. Lockheed chose like he was part of the group that was chosen by lockheed to 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 build that and does he have
1: uh cia collaboration involving the u2
3: yes program yeah, yeah okay yeah, yeah the that whole thing too if you dig into just the history the legit history of Groom lake not not any of the ufo stuff just like because there's a lot of donald d flickinger files there's tons of stuff that's been released by the fbi um, because it, because of the declassified U-2 program and he's all over it, right? There's just tons of documents. Um, so it just, it was one of the, you know, I was looking at the Flickinger stuff and then started looking at the Hopkinsville stuff for Penny Royal. And then I, I just thought, I know this was 55. When did they crash those U-2 planes? And then I look and it's like August, they were flying all these test flights that crashed. And it's like, boom, there's a fucking UFO encounter. <laughs> you know what I mean it's like what if what that guy saw right that they saw the meteors and heard the booms what if that was the fucking U2 plane coming in and uh, you know penetrating the atmosphere from space and and crashing
2: possible it's possible I mean you know the they went so far up that they could see the entire continental United States that was the point of it Yeah, you know and you know who was just to tie it in, because why not? I mean, you know, Carrie Thornley and and uh, Lee Harvey Oswald were both at Sugi Air Base, where they're flying the U twos out of 1959.
3: I didn't know that. That's interesting. Yeah. Yep. What about See? the U two tonight? You know what I'm
2: <laughs> <laughs> so what's this? Uh, so the time we got left here. What's this? Uh, Eleven Somerset. Is this some kind of weird synchronicity
3: here? Dude, I was just recently down at the Magic Kingdom, uh, down in Disney World with my kids, right? And I, I swear it was like it was a wonderful trip. You know, it's exhausting. Disney World's exhausting. I just read, I reread uh Bosley's Key to the Keys to the or Key to the Kingdom about you know Disneyland. Yeah. Uh, obviously we were going to Disney World in Florida, but I was down there and uh um and it was cool, man. I, I love Disney World. There's a lot of strange stuff there, connections between uh Sri. Right. The Stanford Research Institute and Disney, which is legit and true and weird, you know. But uh, so I was there, we were leaving the magic kingdom, and I was sitting on this bus and I, and they have all this like uh stay magical branding, right? And I was yeah. like, uh, yeah. you know, just in terms of like enchantment and a lot of the research that we've done lately, and just you know, sort of one of the themes of Penny Royal about enchantment in your life right and i was like thinking about it and i looked down at my phone i checked my email and i get this email at that moment from this uh email account that said um i won't say the whole thing but the the username was uh reality upgrade and it and it was titled 11 somerset and it came from my public facing just contact form on penny rolls website And so this person basically says that they've never listened to the podcast, but a friend of theirs at work or a coworker uh, had listened to it and said that they needed to send this in that told, told this person to send me this information that I might find it useful. And basically that uh, there was a Canadian television show called 11 Somerset uh, about a group of kids in this strange town. And it involves trans-dimensional travel, all of these weird figures, cybernetics, uh, investigating all this high strangeness and ghosts in, in this Eleven Somerset, right? And that they they created a video game that went along with it and an alternate reality game. And then the person goes on to say that they were researching... 11 somerset and found out that the same people that created that show uh created the tv show galador right and if if you know what galador is it's the lego back in like the early 2000s was going like was losing money which i'm like lego was losing money but they were apparently and they wanted to branch out into making uh action figures but they wanted it to be Lego themed. So you could like take the body parts off and they needed a storyline, a world to put these toys in. And they created Galador defenders of the outer dimension. And it had an alternate reality game about a boy who, uh, whose father was in the outer dimension and built a ship called the egg That he used to travel between dimensions, and his name was Nick, right? So the people that created this, they like start looking at how their alternate reality game is going, and they find William Matheny's Ong's Hat reality game, right? And the whole like, uh, you know, liminal cycle, the Montauk stuff, right? And there's a lawsuit between Matheny. And and basically Galador and Lego over this. Lego even made a small Game Boy uh, system that fit in the back of one of the toys, and it was called the Keck, Kek K E K Powerizer, and like. It's this crazy, uh, you know, toy device thing. So that whole show involves the Ong's hat stuff. So this guy's telling me that, that those people that made that made 11 Somerset and now 11 Somerset doesn't exist anymore. It's lost media. There's no way to get it. And the game is gone. And uh, it's like some and
1: butterfly they, effect shit.
3: Huh? It's weird, man. Right. And so then they, they tell me about something called the manifold, and that all of this drove them mad, and they lost their grip on reality. But they wanted to pass this on to me, that I might find the Eleven Somerset information useful. I thought someone was fucking punking me, right? Because thinking of one eleven and eleven and a left, and all the stuff with the Freemasonry stuff, Lodge one eleven. You know, Sammy Catron was Patrol one eleven. The eleven figures heavily into, you know, the penny roll narrative and the folklore, right? And so I thought someone had made this up, and then I look it up, and sure enough, it really is a 2004 Canadian TV show, right? It really did exist. And on YouTube, there's a 13-episode walkthrough of the game, and it involves all kinds of shit that shows up in the Penny Royal episodes and story are in this game, in this TV show, right? And so I've been trying to get my hands on it. Uh, and then I went down the rabbit hole of this manifold thing, which is this weird art project that involves like trans dimensional travel, cybernetics, all this weird stuff. So I don't know, man, it's been a weird thing. It was conceived also at the, at the time that Sammy Katrin was assassinated, right. Is when the show was conceived right in, in 2002. So I don't know, man. I was like, I said to my wife, I was like, what if there was some type of like ripple, you know, like this, this figure gets killed. And like you said, like a butterfly effect, you know, it's like somehow in the <laughs> etheric matter, this crazy event happens. And then it, it, it's some guy in Canada is like, huh, I'm going to write a show called 11 Somerset. Right.
2: Litch in the matrix, bro. Yeah. I don't know. Gonna
1: anyway, isn't that up weird, a, though? a box with a VHS tape in it <laughs> recorded <laughs> right. from TV um if you find that let us know for sure
3: i will will. i'm
2: surprised that it would be 2004 i'm surprised it's lost
3: that's weird there's a rabbit hole man of this like there are all these people online there's a petition to try to get the show released people have contacted the people that own it the company that made it they will not release the episodes uh one of the episodes is in the canadian national archives i contacted them and yesterday They wrote me back and said that they could not release the episode to me because the original copyright owners would not allow it to be released, even though it's in the National Archive. Can you go watch it there? Yes, you can okay. do that. That's expensive. But, <laughs> yeah, watch. dude, just to see it. The, it's only the fifth episode. They only have the fucking fifth episode, right? That's There's a Wikipedia page for this, and they have the outlines of each episode translated gotcha. from French. So check it out, dude. It is it is really bizarre. And and it's like that happened like two weeks ago. So or two or three weeks ago. So it's like, you know, I'm trying to wrap up Penny Roll, but I keep getting all this like Yeah extra shit that I'm like, man, I've got to stick that in there, you know? Yeah.
1: Well, speaking sweet. of what can we expect from Penny Royal three? And
3: when will that be? hitting the uh,
1: and,
2: and, and, and what about the spear? I think that goes along with it.
3: Oh yeah. So one of the, th- so uh, I am shooting for trying to get the Penny Royal out at the end of March. Uh, I think it's going to be a little bit past that mm-hmm. uh, just because I'm adding all this new stuff. Um, but so, yeah, so in the next couple of months, you know, keep an eye out, it'll be dropping. I'm going to drop it weekly. I'm not going to do the the full drop all at once. So, um, there are 10 episodes and, um, uh, yeah, I mean, they're, they're good. i am just, just keep adding things, you know, adding yeah. stuff here, adding stuff here. I, I, you know, I recently got to interview, uh, Josh Langfelder of, uh, that created the randonautica app that's sort of a part of the story and uh i didn't think i was going to get to interview him and it was like two weeks ago i got to so like that's going to have you know i'm trying to add that into it as well Uh, well i'm sure
1: you know as in uh you know mixing music uh you're never done (laughs) there's a point that you stop so i know dude i know that's coming soon
3: yeah, so at some point I'll have, but in the next couple months, because I I want to get that out, and then uh, later in the summer get uh, in the herd out. Um, but one of the, one of the things that has come out of this is that we we've been a couple of years ago Darian had developed um, some randomness uh, like entropy detection software. Um, we were and we've talked about it in Penny world, the whole uh, Princeton Pear Labs uh, Egg Project, the Global Consciousness Project that research that they did they had i I think at one time it's 45 at the height of the 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 actual program there were 65 uh different places around the planet that had these eggs and there was an isotope inside the egg and it was at random times would release a particle and they were using this to to generate uh true randomness right true entropy and so they were tracking a baseline around the world of what the entropy was and so at (laughs) they claim and and they're they put this out there as evidence that 24 hours prior to 9-11 happening uh the all of these these egg devices the entropy around the planet dropped right and things became more less random and more deterministic and so other events i forget it's like 21 events or something that they've tracked that that affected the whole world have shown uh, to have have changed um, the entropy, and so kind of based off of that and this idea of magic and people imposing their will on um, you know reality and this idea that people are stacking coincidences, stacking synchronicities to cause magical effects, right? Um, and then people that are psychic, right, and and knowing what's going to happen and acting on that. Uh, that all of those things would theoretically decrease the randomness, right? And, and you would see uh, an, 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 you know decrease in entropy. And so a couple of years ago, we had developed some software that could get a local baseline of randomness. And then we were inviting people that purported to do magic or that were psychic or, or having people play with Ouija boards or taking the, the, this device to like graveyards, haunted houses to see if when someone encountered something strange or had a UFO sighting or, you know, whatever had made contact channeled a being, if that would cause the randomness to drop. So we've encased that now in a mobile device. um, And, and there's a group of them of calling them spear sensors, right? And it's single position uh, entropy and randomness sensors. That's where the spear comes from. But do they actually stick into the ground? And so you right. can go to a site or to a place. Uh, and w- one of the things that we're doing, they have GPS and a G3 uh, communicator in there. And they use a Geiger counter. And uh, the Geiger counter is actually what helps generate the randomness. Um, and there's a three axis magnetometer, all that's built into the module. And so The plan is to place these around Pulaski County and around where the Kentucky anomaly is initially to, to look at some of that stuff. But I want to take them to some places that are purported to be haunted, you know, or go to the Mill Springs battlefield. We've got a haunted civil war battlefield and some of these places where people are encountering things where strange things are happening. And then, you know, when you put these things in the ground, it creates because they have the GPS and the G3 sort of a mesh network and it will give you the information through a mobile app that we've designed that syncs with these things. Right. So, um, yeah, so we're trying to test that out to see if, you know, if there's, if there's anything there, but it's really based off of the Princeton pair research basically.
1: Awesome. Well, we look forward to Penny Royal season three and uh, hidden in the herd and anything else you got going on. Um, Thanks a lot for coming on, man. It's always just picking up where we left off. Um, yeah, you know we hope to uh, hope to see you soon. Uh, Adam might see you a little sooner than me, probably, but uh, yeah, hope yeah. hopefully sometime this year.
3: Yeah, man, I love you guys. You know, always,
2: yeah. <laughs> always have the best guys. time with you guys. We want to we want to thank you. We want to thank you for coming on, and uh, uh, we're looking forward to what you got going on. I'm definitely looking forward to Penny Roll of season three and and hitting the Herd. So. Thanks, uh i want to thank you for coming and hanging out with us tonight um guys uh we are still going strong uh we're putting we're gonna be putting out some more shows here pretty soon uh we do have our patreon we've actually got a couple of uh new patreon yeah. um entries up and one with dr future and uh, robert guffey continuing that discussion so if you guys haven't checked that out definitely go check it out hopefully uh sometime soon we will be getting back to doing our monthly meetups uh hopefully and uh we'll, we'll we'll keep you uh apprised of that but uh, if you want to support the show uh we are here we're more than happy to take your support surfiel can tell you where to find that
1: yeah you can head over to patreon.com slash conspiranormal uh that last episode with uh guffy and uh j michael bennett aka dr future is dr really future great. and uh if you're interested in B movies and the point at which the bohemian grove changed from that bohemian hangout to a weird elite sanctuary uh, head on over to patreon.com slash let's give nathan a chance to say his contact and everything
3: Uh, Yeah, so you can find uh, Penny Royal on Spotify, uh, all the major platforms, uh, the website. We've got a Patreon, Liminal Lodge, where we talk about all this research. And uh, yeah, so hit into the herd when that all is out on Spotify. I'll be sharing that as well. Absolutely, Gus. Thanks for listening and be
2: back soon.